may be seated. Awesome. Good to see you. Good to see you this morning. Um, boy, man, what a great weekend we had. We had a, um, a men's breakfast yesterday, and boy, it was just a good time. Uh, men that were here, did you guys get some bacon or what? That was some serious bacon. It was like pork and praise. That's what we called it, man. It was like pretty amazing stuff, and uh, Juan shared with us uh, yesterday and did a, just an amazing job with that. So, But if you missed it, uh, man, we missed you, and uh, we'll have continually have more of those uh, here in the next uh, you know, month or so, but um, uh, just some good stuff. And then uh, last week, last Sunday, we had to eat and greet, uh, which we do periodically. We like to eat around here. I just, I'm like thinking, like, I'm saying a lot of things about, so if you like to eat, you know, this is a good place for you to continue to connect with, I think. And I know there's a ladies' uh, breakfast coming up here shortly as well. But, um, but you know, I mean, our roots are Baptist, so that's kind of where I think where that comes from a little bit, maybe. I don't know. But uh, anyway, so we've been um, uh, talking about over the last few weeks, a starting point. Uh, we just thought that a you know a good thing for us to look at when it comes to you know starting a new year um, is to have a starting point for that. And um, the Bible, you know, to sort of break it all down. And when it comes to you know what it looks like to be a Jesus follower, what it looks like to be called a Christian, um, Jesus really just sums it up um, in these in this way. And really, it was John that really discovered it. John the Baptist really stumbled upon it, you know, in, in his life and. Um, sort of the verse that we've been coming around over the last few weeks is in Luke chapter number seven and verse uh, 28. It says, I say to you, among those born of a woman, Jesus is talking about John the Baptist. I say to you, among those born of a woman, there is no one greater than John. And then he says this, yet he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And so he says, wait, there is a possibility for any one of us in this room to be greater than John the Baptist, even though John the Baptist was an incredible man, and we're going to look at a little bit more of his life today, but he was just an amazing man, did some incredible things for God, but yet Jesus says to you and to me, you can be greater than he. It's, a po it's possible that you, are, you could be greater than he, and John made a statement that I think sort of sums up where our starting point should be. He said this, he says that I must decrease so that he can increase. That in my life, I need to become less so that Jesus can become more. And Jesus, you know, sort of comes around that and says, you know, yeah, if, you, if you're the least, if you're the servant of all, you're the greatest of all in the, according to the kingdom. Now, that's sort of countercultural in a sense. That's sort of counterintuitive. If you were here last week, we talked about how our default intuition is more or less selfish, our default intuition, the, where our bend is naturally, is more towards you know, finding my happiness and finding what makes me have pleasure and you know, what, what is good for my sake and for my gain and for my glory. That's our default setting. But Jesus gives us another way, another alternative to finding his joy, to finding his peace, to finding his goodness. Jesus says, why don't you try something different than what the world is telling you to do? Why don't you find something counter to what culture says that you should do? Why don't you become least and then you'll be considered to be great? Why don't you decrease your, yourself and let him increase in your life. So that's what we think the starting point is. Now, 
where we're going to sort of end this uh, today, this week, is um, I want to talk about what happens naturally to us when that happens. When we think uh, maybe I should you know, become less and he could become more and what did that look like? But, you know, what ha- naturally happens to us? Well, I think it's something that all of us experience. All of us experience this, whether it's a season of it, uh, whether it's a thought that comes to our mind or whether it's a, you know, a day-to-day basis. All of us uh, have this. But before I do that, like I said, I want to come back around to uh, John's story. Now, here's what it says in Mark chapter number six. Starting in verse 17, for Herod himself had sent and had John arrested and bound in prison on an account of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip, because he had married her. Now, in order for us to understand what's happening here, I want us to try to give give you a picture of what's going on historically, okay? Now, I want to start out with a guy by the name of Herod the Great, Herod the Great. Herod the Great was uh, the, the king when Jesus was born. Herod the Great was a terrible, terrible person. He was terrible. He killed three wives. He killed two of his own sons and a mother-in-law. Now, maybe some of you can relate to that, but he, that's what he did. Now, none of you would go to that extreme, but that's the kind of person that he was. He killed three wives, two, bro- two sons, and his a mother-in-law. Uh, Caesar Augustus, who is a footnote in the, in the birth story of Jesus, he said about Herod the Great, he said, it is better to be a swine in Herod's kingdom than a son. That's what he said about Herod the Great. It's better to be a swine. Herod the Great was so terrible that he, um, near his death, he knew his death was coming to an end, his life was coming to an end, that he gathered up leaders in Galilee and he brought them, took them captive, and he put them in prison in Jericho in, in, the, in the purposes of awaiting for when he died, he gave orders in his will to kill all of those leaders of Galilee. That was, his, that was his mandate in his will. The reason why he did that was he said, I wanna make sure that someone is mourning on my death. That was why he did that. And so it, 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 when Herod died, they actually set the captives free and they had a party in the streets just like you would assume they would. Herod the Great was a terrible, terrible person. Well, after Herod the Great died, the Roman government, Roman leaders said, you know what, we're not gonna give that much power anymore to one man. And so they distributed Herod the Great's power to his three sons, Herod Archelaus, Herod Antipas, and Herod Philip. Herod Archelaus was overseed uh, Samaria and, um, and Judea, and Herod Antipas oversaw Galilee, and for some reason or another, Herod Philip didn't oversee anything. They didn't give him any responsibility whatsoever. But he had the privileges of being you know, a king and the son of a great king, and so he had all of these riches, and I don't know if he didn't mind having the responsibility or not. But Herod Philip, though, was married to a woman by the name of Herodias, Herodias. They were married. She was a tough, tough woman. She was no nonsense, and we'll discover that here in a few minutes. But he was married to Herodias. They had a daughter by the name of Salome, okay? Now, one day, Herod Antipas went in, in to go visit his brother, Herod Philip, and Herod Antipas and Herodias sort of hit it off. And Herod, Herod Antipas said to his brother's wife, hey, I think I love you. 
And Herod Antipas, or excuse me, and Herodias said back to him, I think I love you too. And so they ran off together. They, I know, you, you guys, this is interesting at all to you guys. This is kind of like, don't worry about, read the Bible. Don't worry about watching a soap opera. This is in the Bible. And so Herodias ran off with, with um, her husband's brother and they went back to Galilee. And so we, this is where we pick it up in the story. Herod Antipas is now married to Herodias after running away with her, her husband's brother. Now, as a result of this, when it comes to John the Baptist, John the Baptist was a no-nonsense guy. He was like, he didn't pull any punches. It was black and white with John the Baptist. He was, so he would see, you know, Herodias come down to the river, you know, in Galilee, and he would be yelling out to her, you're an adulterer! You're an adulterer. I mean, don't you like that preacher, you know, pointing at you when you come in and pointing at all your faults, right? You know, he's like, you're an adulterer. And so as a result of that, it says in verse um, you know, 17, for Herod himself had sent and John arrested and bound in prison on the account of Herodias, the wife of his, wife of his brother Philip, because he had married her. Verse 18 says this, for John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So John was like, no nonsense. He was saying to Herod, no matter if he was the king or not, no matter if he was in charge or not, it didn't matter to John. He was saying to Herodias, listen, this is not lawful. I mean, today, in today's day, that would be scandalous. And even at that day, it was scandalous. Even at that time frame, it was like unheard of. And John the Baptist is saying, it is not lawful. You're breaking the laws of God. You've committed adultery, you know, with your brother's wife. And, and so, as, so as you would imagine, here's what the next verse says. Herodias had a grudge against him, right? Of course she would. Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death and could not do so. Why? For Herod was afraid of John. Why was Herod afraid of John? Because John was popular, John had the attention of all the people. People were drawn to John. And so Herod was afraid of an insurrection. So John was Herod was afraid to arrest John or to put John to death, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man and he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was very perplexed, but he used to enjoy listening to him. Isn't that interesting? Like here's John in prison and John at this time is probably, you know, in prison for months, maybe even up to a year. And during that time, I don't know, you know, Herod would, you know, Antipas would get bored and he'd be like, summon John up to speak to me. You know, and I'm sure John would come up and say, you know, you're an adulterer. And, you know, I don't know why he would want to hear that abuse, but he probably would hear that from, from John the Baptist. And he would, but John the Baptist would also say, but there's one here who is the Messiah. He's the Christ. He's the Lamb of God. He's going to bring, you know, establish his kingdom on this earth. And so Herod's going, wow, this is kind of entertaining. And so he enjoyed listening to him. Well, all that time, you got to imagine, here's, and here's sort of the tension. You got to imagine, here's a guy, John the Baptist, who's faithful, who's obedient, who's courageous, who's selfless, and the reward for that is prison? 
I mean, all the things that John did, you know, for, for, for Jesus and all the things that he said in his, in his boldness that he would say to anyone who would listen. And the reward of that in the economy of God is you're going to jail. You're rotting in prison. Meanwhile, Jesus is out there healing people, you know, restoring people, bringing people to himself, showing compassion, forgiveness. You know, people are being, you know, healed and, and, of, of their diseases and their ailments. And, and he's, Jesus is just out and about doing some things for God. And John is in prison. That's fair. Don't we sometimes wrestle with the fact that, wrestle with the fact that, you know, that how do bad things happen to good people? How is it that possible that, that, that this guy, John, that God would allow something like this to happen to him? Shouldn't the bad things happen to the bad people if we're honest with ourselves? And this is what John's tension is. This is how John feels. And so we know that he feels that way based on Matthew. Look what it says in Matthew, Matthew chapter number 11. Now when John, while imprisoned, heard of the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples. And he said to him through his disciples, are you the expected one or should we look for someone else? Whoa, 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 whoa. I mean, you're talking about a guy, by the way, Jesus's cousin, their family. John is in prison probably for up to a year at this time. And he's now in his, in his prison cell questioning and wondering if Jesus really is the one that they've been expecting. Is Jesus really the one who they call the Christ, the Messiah, the savior of the world? Is he really that guy? You know what happens to you and me when, when we're asked to become less and for him to become more, you know what typically happens? It's what happened to a man that Jesus said there was no one greater born of a woman than John. It happened to him and it happens to us. We doubt. We doubt. We start to wonder, wait a minute, I, I, you want me to be selfless? And then you want me to, you know, you know what we talked about last week, just about being hid with Christ you know, that my life is not necessarily seen. My ambitions may not always be seen, but it's the ambitions of God. It's the glory of God. It's for his gain, not mine. It's God's interests, not my interests. And then we start to wonder, is he really the guy that I should follow? And John felt that. You know what happened to John? John sat in a prison cell. And these prison cell walls shrunk down his faith in Jesus. You ever been there? You ever been to a place in your life where you just, you know, at one time you're, you know, yes, he's the expected one. Yes, he's my savior. Yes, I'm gonna follow him. Yes, I'm gonna live for him. But then the next minute, maybe because of some sort of situations that happen in our life, our circumstances shrink down our faith. And his faith shrunk down to the size of the prison dungeon that he sat in. I mean, think about John. I mean, he was a guy that lived in the wilderness. 
I mean, he ate locusts for crying out loud, right? You wouldn't even eat chocolate-covered locusts. And this guy is just, you know, chomping on locusts like it's a, like a midnight snack. I mean, this is a guy that was exposed to the world and he didn't have an inhabited place. You know, he just lived out on his own and, and free and, and, and no limitations, no boundaries in his life. But now he's in a prison cell. For what? For being faithful? For being obedient? For being selfless? Doesn't seem fair. And when that happens to us, we doubt. It happens to me. Now, there's a few reasons why John doubted. And I want us to see if those, any of these reasons you can relate with. The first one is this is when we, go through, when we go personally through difficult circumstances, right? That's an obvious one. When we go through difficult circumstances personally, that's when we oftentimes doubt. We doubt, is this true? Is Christianity real? Is this, you know, is this what I should be following in my life? Should I make much of Jesus in my life? And we, but when we go through, you know, personally, when we go through difficult circumstances, we naturally doubt, you know, it's interesting, though. I mean, when our, our circumstances always sort of change and adjust our confidence in God, don't they? I mean, I remember, you know, high school and early years of college. I mean, I was probably at the lowest in my faith and my trust in God, but it was like the happiest time. It was when I had the most fun, you know? But my faith in God, my confidence in God was low, but my, my time and my experience in my life was, was high. I experienced fun. And, but when, when there's times when we experience, maybe there's no, no job, you know, maybe you don't have health care, or maybe you're going through a marital strife, or maybe there's kids that you're, you know, drama with your kids. And, but when we go through those things, you know what that typically does to, to us? It sort of drives us back to God. I mean, as a pastor, I get to hear that. I hear this stuff all the time. You know, I get the front row seat to people's experiences. When they go through a personally a difficult experience in their life, it sort of pushes them. It sort of drives them back to their faith because they don't know where else to go. They don't know where else to go. But it's interesting how our personal circumstances sort of fluctuate our confidence in God. When things go well in our life, we don't need God. When things don't go well in our life, we do need and there's something, I'm going to kind of push and prod a little bit on you right now, okay? There's something hypocritical. There's something selfish about this. Let me give you an example. When I hear and you hear about circumstances that other people go through personally, when you hear about, I don't know, mudslides and you hear about fires and you hear about, you know, human trafficking and you hear about, you know, poverty and you hear about, you know, people don't get, you know, proper drinking water or, or, or food, you know, intake. And, or you just hear about somebody that maybe lost a job or you sit down with somebody who is going through ch challenges in life and they're going through, you know, situations in school and relationships, you know, you hear about those things and what you naturally and what I naturally tell them is this, I'm going to pray for you, right? 
I'm praying for you. I'm believing that God is gonna use this situation. God is gonna use this circumstance and he's gonna do great things through it. When I'm talking to you, it's easy for me to say, he's gonna do this for you. He's amazing. Keep following him. But here's, the, here's where it sort of gets a little hypocritical. When I go through those things, you know what happens to me? I doubt and you're the one telling me, oh, God is going to be come through for you in an amazing way. He's going to be faithful to you. He's going to show you some incredible things. But when you go through stuff, I pray. But when I go through stuff, I doubt. Isn't that sort of selfish? A little hypocritical? And here's what John needed to come to the realization of that as followers of Jesus, as followers of Jesus, every Jesus follower is subject to the providential purposes of God, whether it is perceived as deserved or undeserved. That you have to know and I have to know in those times when I go through a personally difficult circumstance and you go through a difficult circumstance personally, that there is a providential purpose. There is a God that is bigger than us. There is a way that is different than my way or your way. There is a plan of God orchestrated and in place. And sometimes that feels to you and to me either deserved or undeserved. That's one reason why we sometimes doubt is when we go through personal circumstances that don't seem fair, don't seem like you deserve that. And probably most cases, you don't deserve that. But... God knows, he knows, and he had a plan. And that's how John felt in that regard. The second reason why I think sometimes we doubt is that we have incomplete information. Incomplete information. Look what it says in um, Matthew 11, verse two. It says, now in John, while in prison, so that was the first one, that he had a difficult circumstance while he was in prison. So when he wasn't in prison, he was fine, he was faithful, but while he was imprisoned, that's when he doubted. But he also, when he heard of the works of Christ, when he heard of the works of Christ. Now, he's, while he's in prison, he's hearing what Jesus is doing out there. He's hearing all of, this, all of the miracles. He's hearing all of the healings. He's he- hearing all of the people that Jesus is feeding you know, at, at one time. And he's hearing all of these things. And, and, and he's wondering, boy, why don't I get to be out there with them? Or, or man, wh- what is it about me that I can't, that I have to be sitting in here and he's out there doing that? Why can't I continue to tell people about who he is? Instead, I'm in here. And by the way, the enemy is really good at magnifying things in our mind, isn't he? The enemy is really good at getting us to believe something that simply just isn't true. The enemy is just really good at getting you to think that God is holding out on you when really God has a different plan in mind for you. But the enemy is just so good at you thinking that he's thinking, man, if I can just tell them that God is holding out on them, man, they're going to start to believe that. And we do. We do. 
And what John had is that John had incomplete information. And when you and I have incomplete information, that's when we doubt. So I want to just touch on a few things that you have maybe heard before, but, but, but God didn't say them. I want to just for, just for a minute talk, talk about those things. Number one is this, that money is the root of all evil. Have you ever heard that before? Money is the root of all evil. Somebody told you, you know, money is the root of all evil. And you're like, oh, what do I do with it? I earn it. I get it. And I, should I not pay my bills or what, what should I do? No, 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 no. God never said that money was the root of all evil. And this is sort of why, just as a side note, this is sort of why churches get rep, bad reputations when it comes to the, because everybody thinks, oh, they just want my money. Oh, they just want my money. You know, all they all want me to do is, well, I just want to come here. They just want my money. Listen, I don't want your money. This church doesn't want your money. We're just glad that you're here. We want you to experience Jesus. That's what you want. we want you to experience. But the Bible doesn't say that money is the root of all evil. It says the love of money is the root of all evil. When it becomes your God, when it is your idol, when it is your thing that you rely on above and beyond anything else, then it is your idol. Not money. So have fun with it. Spend it for the glory of God. Here's another one. Here's another one. This is, I'm, I'm going to just poke and poke and poke a little bit. God just wants me to be happy. God does want you to be happy. But happiness is a byproduct of holiness. God does want you to be happy. I don't want you to hear me wrong. God doesn't want you to be happy. But what we see, what God says is, you know how you get happiness? You know how you get joy? You know how you get peace? You know how you get patience in your life? And on and on and on. You know how you get that? That happens through holiness. Happiness is a byproduct of holiness. What God wants for you and for me more than he wants you to be happy is that God wants you to be holy. God wants you to be more like him. When you and I learn to become less and for him to become more, then that ups your happiness level more than it does when you try to become more and, and make him less. And so somebody said to you at one point, while you were going through a tough time, you know, God just wants you to be happy, and they gave you some bad advice. That is secondhand information that God never said. No, what should they say to you and to me is, God wants you to be holy when you pursue him with everything you got, heart, soul, mind, and strength. You will become like him, and therefore, you will be happier than you've ever been in your whole life. You will feel like you've never felt before. Why? Because it comes from him. The reason why we doubt is, well, I thought God wanted to be happy and you're not happy. And so you're like, well, I guess God is wrong. God never said that. Somebody else said that to you. Here's another one. Just because I'm having fun. (laughs) God will never give you more than you can handle. No, I got some groaning in here. Like, oh, oh, wait a minute. Wait, wait a minute. This isn't true. God will never give you more. Listen, I just want to show you a verse. I'm not even going to try to elaborate on it. I'm just going to show you this verse. Here's what it says in 2 Corinthians 8-ish, 8 or 9, I think, 8. For we do not want you to be unaware. 
Okay, so he's talking about, uh, I don't want you to be unaware, brethren, of, of our afflictions which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened, burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life. And then he says this, for the reason why. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves. They just thought, we're just gonna die. This is, this is beyond what we can handle. We're just gonna die within ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. You know that sometimes, ah, this is so hard to say. This is, almost hurts me because I would rather say to you that he will never give you more than you can handle. I would rather say that to you, but I can't based on the authority of the word of God, that God will sometimes give you more than you can handle. Why? So that you don't fall away from him, but you instead run to him and you trust him and you give your life to him. That's why he will sometimes give you, like he did John, more than he could handle. And I know that's not easy for anybody to hear. Here's probably my favorite, and, my, and the teens know it, they know it, I, they, they tell me back to me all the time. Follow your heart, believe, and you can do anything. Like, like we're in Disney World for crying out loud. Like I'm Mickey Mouse giving you that message. No, that is not what God said. Don't, it, listen, listen, I know, I know, this is like, you're, I'm really rubbing here. I get it, I get it. Don't follow your heart. You know why? Because here's what Jeremiah says. Here's what God says through Jeremiah. The heart is more deceitful than all else and is beyond cure. Like, so if we're letting our heart lead, if we're letting our heart make our decisions, if we're letting our heart inform, you know, our, our, our will, we're in trouble because our heart is deceptive. Our heart is what he says, beyond cure. Who can understand it? I mean, I can't understand my wife's heart. Can you? I mean, I don't understand that all the time. I mean, she doesn't get me either sometimes either. But listen, this is the reality of it. I'm, when you say, when, don't ever say to somebody, just follow your heart, believe, and God can do anything you want. No, that's terrible advice, isn't it? Say yes, yes, okay. <laughs> Listen, these are, these are, and so when we say, I, I followed my heart, and this is where I got. I followed my heart, and this is where I landed. And I thought that God says I can, I can follow my heart, and if I just believe that I can do anything. God never said that. And when we start to believe things that are, are not true based on what we heard somebody like me say, you're gonna doubt because lack of information causes people to doubt. And you, if you and I have different, uninformed in, in information, if you, if you and I have information that it is not complete based on what God says, it's just simply gonna cause us doubt. And John, for John, he's going, I hear, I, I just hear what's going on. I hear what's going on. He's getting secondhand information and not all of the information. Here's the third one. 
You and I sometimes doubt when we have unfulfilled expectations. Unfulfilled expectations. Now, John and the Jewish people had an expectation of who Jesus was or who the Christ was or who, what to expect when the expected one came. So when the expected one arrived, John started hearing some things about what Jesus was doing and therefore it was unfulfilling to him because he was doing things that, that he thought that Jesus would do and he wasn't doing. So he was, he was thinking that, man, I have an expectation for who the expected one is and he's not doing what I expected him to do. And here's a couple of them with the, of what they uh, thought that Jesus would do. They thought that Jesus would um, establish a kingdom on earth right there and then. They thought that the Christ was gonna come and establish his kingdom on earth right then and there, and then therefore eliminate their oppression, eliminate their ruling of people over them that they have experienced for hundreds and hundreds of years. They thought that that was gonna happen. And when Jesus came, and he didn't speak bad about Rome or any other nation. It was like, what are you doing? I thought that you were gonna be the one that was gonna deliver us out of this Roman oppression. Why aren't you doing that? And he didn't meet their expectation. Jesus didn't defend them at all. Now, here's another one. Here's another one. They thought that when the Christ came, that he was gonna bring about uh, you know, health, wealth, and happiness. They thought that he was gonna come and he was gonna heal the world and, and, and anyone who was sick or, or anybody who was crippled, that they were gonna be restored. That meant everybody. Now, Jesus did some of that, but he certainly didn't do it for the whole world. But they had an expectation that he was gonna come and he was gonna you know, rid the world of all of their pain, rid the world of all of its anguish, rid the world of all of its oppression. They believed that Jesus was gonna come or the Christ or the expected one was gonna come and do that, and he didn't. He didn't. He only brought people into himself. He only brought people that were different than him, him into himself. He only healed a few people. He only allowed a few people to be fed, not everyone to be fed, only a few. So there was this unmet, unfulfilled expectation of who Jesus was. The biggest one for John was this. John thought that Jesus was gonna bring judgment on the, on the whole earth. John thought, and that was sort of John's message, right? Repent, 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 you know, he's coming, he's gonna bring a judgment. He, he, he described it like a, an ax to the base of a tree, that he's like that ax and, and your, your time is, is running up and he's gonna you know, chop those trees down, those bad trees down, he described it in that way. He also described it in a way that he was like a willowing fork. And you're like, what is a willowing fork? Well, a willowing fork was something that separated good wheat from bad chaff and that he thought that that's what Jesus would do. He thought that right there in that moment at that time that Jesus would walk on the scene and bring about the wrath of God, the judgment of God upon all of the people who didn't follow Jesus. That's what they believed would happen. 
but he didn't. Instead, he extended grace. Instead, he extended mercy. Instead, he extended forgiveness. And he welcomed those, anyone, to follow him. You and I doubt, John doubted, because he had an unfulfilled expectation of who Jesus was. And here's what John, or excuse me, here's what Jesus' response is to John. And here's what Jesus' response is to you and to me that when doubt rises up, whether it's a season in our life that we experience doubt, whether it's a day-to-day, whether it's a thought that comes to our mind, here's what Jesus' response was to John. Can you imagine that scene, by the way, the disciples going to finding Jesus and saying, "Um, excuse me, Jesus, I know you're in the middle of healing somebody right now. I know that you're in the middle of feeding people right now, but I just got a message from your cousin John of what he wants to say to you. He has a question for you, Jesus. So pardon me, everybody, while he's doing miracles, let me just ask this question to you. Are you the expected one? Or should we look for someone else? And Jesus' response is, is, to, is to John personally, but it's to us as well. Jesus answered and said to them, go and report to John what you hear and what you see. I want you to go back and I want you to report to John what you hear and what you see. And then he says this, the blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf here, the dead are raised up. The poor have the gospel preached to them. And by the way, according to Luke's gospel, he said, you know what, Jesus, Jesus did that right on the spot. Jesus did a healing exhibition right there in that moment while John's disciples are waiting to ask him the question, are you the expected one or should we look for somebody else? Jesus starts giving sight to the blind. Jesus starts allowing the lame to walk. Jesus starts healing and cleansing lepers. Jesus starts giving, you know, hearing to the deaf and raising up the dead and the poor were given the good news of the gospel right there on the spot. And he said to him, he says, hey, boys, go back and tell cousin John, by the way, if it was me, I'd be like, oh, I know, I feel, I, I should have went to go visit him. I know I meant to do it like a month ago, but I, I got hung up at work, you know, and, I, this is, and that's what I would have done. But Jesus is like, I'm not even gonna go and tell John this myself, even though he is my friend, even though he is my cousin. Boys, I just want you to go back and I want you to tell John what you see and what you hear. Boy, oh boy. I mean, you would imagine these guys going back going, I knew this is so embarrassing you know like why did we have to do this he right on the spot he healed people and when they were walking away John said one more or Jesus said one more thing and he said this and I believe this is specifically for you and for me and blessed in other words the word blessed means happy and happy is he who does not take offense at me 
I want you to go and tell John that sometimes things happen. Sometimes you're going to go through things in life that you don't seem like you deserve or you don't seem like they're fair. But I just want you to know this, that blessed is he, happy is he who does not take offense at my providential plans, my providential purposes for their life. Because in that is found true joy. In that is found true freedom. Freedom. Boys, go tell John that. And I'm sure those boys went back to John and said, hey, this is what happened. This is what we heard. And this is what we saw with our own eyes. Every Jesus follower is subject to the providential purposes of God, whether it is perceived as deserved or undeserved. And you might have an expectations and you might just have bad secondhand information and certainly you go through difficult circumstances. But what Jesus is telling John and what Jesus is telling you and me in those seasons or in those thoughts to rise up above that, rise above your personal circumstance, rise above your lack of information, rise above your unfulfilled expectation and know that you put your trust and faith in the right guy. Because what Jesus did that day was physically heal people to demonstrate his greatness and his power and the fact that he really was the Christ. But what Jesus is saying to you and to me is this is that he wants you to see clearly and give you a vision and have a clear vision for what God has for you in your life. What God wants to say to you is he wants to whisper into your new ears his plan and his purposes for your life. And those will be loud and clear. What Jesus wants to do is he wants to cleanse that addiction or at least those habits that you have in your life and bring them to a place where you are fully restored. What Jesus wants to do is he wants to heal a crippled relationship in your life so that you and your marriage or you and your friendships or you and your, you know, with your classmates or coworkers can walk side by side together. That's what Jesus wants to do for you. That's what he can do for you. That's who he is. You have, you have put your faith and your trust in the right guy. But let me tell you something. He's telling you, blessed are you who don't take offense at him for what he allows to happen in your life. Rise above it and know that you put your faith in Jesus, the savior of the world. And he wants to heal you, restore you, redeem you, give you a new life, a new walk, a new purpose, a new plan, a new agenda with him, making much of him and less of you, more of Jesus and less of you. And I'm telling you, when you do that, you will be happier than you've ever been in your life. That's what Jesus wants to do for you. And that's what Jesus is telling you and me. And that's what he told John. So John got busted out, didn't he? You know the story. 
John, Jesus showed up, man, on his white horse, you know, like put, opened up the gates, you know, you know, you know, summoned John out of the dungeon cell. That's what happened, didn't it? No, no, it didn't happen that way. If you're new to church, sorry to bust your bubble there. No. Herod and uh, his new wife Herodias had a party, premeditated party. Herodias' daughter, Salome, danced for her stepdad, uncle, weird, I don't know, don't ask. He got excited and offered her an opportunity to request anything, request anything that she would want up to half of his kingdom. Can you imagine that? She did what no daughters ever do and went and asked her mom what she should ask for. (laughs) What kids do that? What do you think I should do, mom? She went to her mother, Herodias, and said, ask for the head of John the Baptist. King, you just knew he was just gut-wrenched by that. Wasn't expecting that one. He loved John, liked John, was entertained by John, afraid of John. But yet because of his pride in, all of, in front of all of his guests there at that party, summoned some guards to go down to the dungeon where John the Baptist was and his head was cut off. His head was brought on a platter and presented. Well, that's fair, isn't it? And I thought to myself, well, that was the end. That's the end. And then God put something on my heart. He said, no, that was the beginning. John may have lost his earthly life and his purposes on this earth were finished, but he went to eternity. He went where God is. And you know where that is? That's a place where there is no more pain, no more hurt, no more sorrow, no more grief. That is a place that was prepared for John where he would be treated in the honor that he should have been treated in, where he stood before an almighty God and God said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. I put you and I made you faithful with a little and I'm, as a result of that, I'm gonna give you much. Enter now in the joy of your master. It wasn't the end of John the Baptist. It was the beginning of John the Baptist in eternal life. Jesus was doing him a favor. your life and mine. It's not end here. It does not end here. You and I live our lives faithful to the purposes and the plans of God. And when God says your time is up here, you will go there. But as long as you're living and breathing here, God still has a plan for your life. As long as you're here, he's got a plan.
And maybe one day you'll be like, Paul, I kept the faith. I ran the race. I fought the good fight. Man, what a starting point. What a starting point for us this year. There's nothing better than becoming less so that he can become more. Father, we, um, we're so grateful for a faithful man that we talked about. We talk about 2,000 years after the event happened of a man named John who was so faithful, so obedient, so dedicated and devoted to your kingdom and your purposes that he gave his life for it. And I'm so grateful that the Bible is so honest with us and it touches on all the areas in our life that we battle with and struggle with and that is the area of doubt. And even a man that you said was, has never been born greater of a woman than John had doubts. He had doubts. And I pray, Lord, that we can rise above those doubts when we have them. And to know that even beyond our personal circumstances and beyond our lack of information and beyond our unfulfilled expectations, you are the right person that we put our faith in and we put our trust in. Because what you asked of John and what you ask of us is what you did. You laid yourself down on that cross when it didn't seem fair. And you gave your life as a ransom for many. Knowing that that would just pave the way for us that at the end of our time here on this earth, it's not the end. It's only steps us into the beginning of why you created us, why you made us, and why you put breath in our lungs. So for, so for us to be with you and be considered good and faithful servants of what you've entrusted us with. Thank you for this time together. Thank you for the opportunity to gather together. I pray for each one here as they wrestle with these areas of doubt, I pray that they rise above it and continue to set their sights and their eyes on you. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Thanks for coming. Good to see you. I was blinded 